We're starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this gathering. Thank you that we can come together and worship you, and we can sing together, we can honor you, we can listen to your word preached, and I pray that you convict each of us, God. Uh, change us, make us more like you. May we know uh, what your kingdom is about, and may we press into it tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends. There you are. Good evening. All right. Got a few over here. I'm not trying to. So we are in the gospel of the, we are in the kingdom of God. Looking at the kingdom of God tonight, we're looking at the gospel of the kingdom in particular. We're in Matthew. Um, I was, uh, I was I, between seven and ten years old. So my son's ten, my youngest daughter's six. So I was between my Susanna's age and Seth's age. I can't remember exactly how old, but I was young. And we went out to the Sierra Nevadas in California. And we were on a father daughter, son, and my sister was with us, um, trip, backpacking. And I remember my backpack was just massive. And we did a lot of hiking. And it was my first, like, serious time out in the mountains. It was about five days, I think. And there was a, toward the last day, there was a sort of trust exercise where there was about a 100 or 200 foot cliff, sheer cliff. And I got sent over first. We were repelling. I didn't know what it was at the time. But I was, again, between seven, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, pretty young. And I remember the guy talked to us about trust and surrender, and then he put me out. I hadn't seen anyone do it. And, you know, you look over and you can't see anything but way down below. And you certainly can't see the face that you're supposed to touch with your feet. And he just had me go first. And I was terrified. And rappelling doesn't work. You, you know, you lean back on the rope like this, and you just fall onto the rope. And it doesn't work if you try to not fall, if you try to kind of do it yourself it doesn't work at all. You have to just trust and surrender and let go. And I cried like a little baby, just wept. I was so scared. But it, finally, 
when I surrendered and trusted and just leaned back, the rope did its work and the rappelling worked and I worked my way kicking down the, the hundred foot cliff face. Um, and that's really what we see, what I want us to see here is I'm going to just do sort of a whirlwind and I say whirlwind tour through Matthew because it's going to be, you know, 25 minutes or 20 minutes of, of rocking through Matthew and looking at the king coming and, and his kingdom. And it's really a surprise because what we see is that the kingdom of God comes through what you don't expect, which is not through conquest like we think of a king and his kingdom coming in power. But he comes, he, comes, um, he comes surrendering and he comes in apparent weakness and he comes calling us, he, he comes living a life of trust and calling us to trust. Um, like I said a couple weeks ago, Matthew is the first gospel that's given to us in the ordering and he, he mentions the kingdom of God over 50 times in the book. And so if you miss, it's Jesus's favorite subject. So if, if you think you know Jesus, but you miss the kingdom and you don't understand what the kingdom of God is, you really don't understand what he came for, according to Matthew. He is the king and he came to establish and to bring his kingdom. Um, and I just feel like during this time of tumult and questioning and disorientation and fear, we need to get this into our hearts and heads, that Christ is the king and that Christ is reigning and that his kingdom is coming. Um, and so last week, Jake read and taught from Daniel 7 and it's this vision of he really talked about how Daniel had these visions of of the king that was going to come and turned out five centuries this promised messiah this king who's going to come and he was going to rule Jake talked a fair amount beautifully about how Daniel received these visions in the night and yet it was this vision of the light of God spreading out over all the earth in the midst of this really dark situation and Jake just encouraged us that there is a lot more light than we're aware of, even in the darkness, because of, because of the king, because of the Messiah, because of what God's doing. Um, but it was this picture that Daniel got of this king approaching the ancient of days, the eternal one, the uncreated one, God himself, and being given a kingdom that spread itself out like a mountain over the entire earth. And it would grow and grow and grow. And other, it would destroy the other competing kingdoms. And, and his reign would be total. Um, and what we have is, and this king's going to be Davidic, he's going to be from the line of David. What we have as Jesus Christ is born and as he steps on the scene in Matthew, 500 years after Daniel, is we have Israel waiting for this king, this promised king from the line of David. And David was a what? What, was, what did David do? He was a poet, he was a musician, but he was also, he was a shepherd, okay? He was a lot of things. What did he do? Okay, he was a warrior. He was a warrior. Um, and there's that story of David and Goliath, and he, uh, he had a lot of blood on his hands in a good way. He crushed the enemies of God. He, he killed a lot of people. And so, and that's the kind of king that almost all of Israel was expecting, a king of conquest. Like when we think of a king conquering, that's the kind of king that they were expecting for the most part. Someone to put Israel back on the map. Israel was not, not in the middle of a heyday. Israel was under the thumb of the Romans, and they had not had political control for a long time, Okay. Um, and they were surrounded by these massive world powers and they were waiting for this king to put them back on the map, a geopolitical king. Um, and they were waiting for a king to pulverize the Romans who had them under their thumb. And so what we see in Matthew, we see a bunch of stuff. We see that the kingdom comes through trust and surrender. We see that 
the kingdom comes in a way smaller form than we would imagine. The kingdom comes in an animal feed trough through this, through this baby that's born in, into poverty. None of, us, none of us chose how we'd be born. God did. God chose to be born poor in, a, in an animal feed trough when there wasn't any, any other room for him. Um, but the kingdom also comes way, in, way bigger than we even imagine. Way bigger than coming to conquer our geopolitical enemies. Way bigger than winning an election. Way bigger. Um, and that's how Matthew starts out. So it's, it comes smaller than we would imagine, but it also uh, ends up being much, much bigger. Um, Matthew starts by saying, the first verse in Matthew, and this is why I had to think I'll read this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. That word in the Greek is Genesis, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of, of Abraham. What is Matthew saying? Um, well, one of the things that commentators are pretty agreed on here is that Matthew seems to be saying that Jesus is starting something new. He's calling back to the first book of the Bible and he's saying, this king isn't just going to bring the Jews back into, onto the world stage. He's not just going to um, pulverize their geopolitical enemies. He's going to do something as big as God did in the beginning with the creation. He's going to start, he's going to begin a new creation that's literally not going to stop until everything's made new. Um, he's not going to just solve our problems. He's going to remake everything. And he's going to be born in a feed trough to poor parents. So, so you, have this, um, you have this beginning of Matthew and his gospel this sort of, that harkens back to Genesis, the very beginning of the scriptures, the very beginning of the history of God's people, right, of all of us. And then Matthew proceeds to take us through this genealogy in Matthew 1, and it's really, it's, it's the genealogy that it traces through Abraham, the father of the Jews, through whom the blessing to all peoples will come, and it, then it goes through David. He's going to come from David. And really what it's doing is it's basically... Um, he is giving us a genealogy, a very Israelite genealogy through Abraham, through David. This man is going to be a Jew and uh, it starts in Genesis and it takes us through this very Israelite um, lineage, okay? Then we get to um, chapters two and three and what happens? Herod gets wind, the, the king at the time of that area, he gets wind through the wise men of the fact that a king has been born. So he's in Jerusalem or nearby and just five miles south, he gets wind that there's a king that's been born and it's been prophesied through the prophet Micah. And that's what his wise men tell him. And so the wise men have come from far, far away. They've seen the star of this king. All of creation is announcing this king. And Herod says, what's happening? And they say, this king has been born, the king of the Jews. And... Um, what does he do in response? He kills all the Hebrew boys in the area, all the Jewish boys in the area that are anywhere close to what he would think Jesus' age would be. There's genocide. And um, Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, gets a dream uh, from God saying his life is in danger. Take him down to Egypt. So he takes Mary who's by now his wife, he's married her. Um, Jesus was born of, a, of the Virgin Mary, and so Jesus is, Joseph, his adoptive father, God is, his, is his, 
heavenly father, his true father. And, and Joseph, protecting them, takes Mary, now his wife, and Jesus, and he goes down to Egypt. And he takes him down to Egypt. And Matthew says something astonishing in chapter 2. He says, this, so he goes down to Egypt, they live there for a bit, and then um, an, another angel comes to Joseph and says, okay, the one who sought, Herod's dead, the one who sought the life of your son, so you can, you can go back to Israel. And so he again goes, he obeys, and Matthew has an amazing thing to say on that, a commentary on that. He said, this was to fulfill, this is Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Israel I have called my son. Uh, Excuse me, out of Egypt, I I wrote down Israel for some reason, out of Egypt I have called my son. I think that's because I did it by memory. Matthew 2.15 says, he says, Joseph took, God had them go down to Egypt and then come out of Egypt back to the promised land for this reason. It was to fulfill what was written by Hosea the prophet where he wrote in Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now here's the amazing thing about that. What if you, if you're just reading Hosea, okay, hundreds of years before and he says, out of Egypt I've called my son, what's, what's Hosea talking about? Out of Egypt I've called my son. What's, what's the major salvation event in the Old Testament that he's referring to? The Exodus, the Exodus, taking 2,600,000 to 2 million Hebrew slaves out of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, devastating the nation and bringing massive amount of people, his own people out of Egypt. And that's what Hosea is talking about. But Matthew says something astonishing. He says, actually, that wasn't the fulfillment of what Hosea was talking about. The fulfillment of what Hosea was talking about was Jesus the baby, the promised king that's now here being brought out of Egypt. He fulfills that. In other words, what is, what, is, what is Matthew saying? He's saying God ordered all of that history and that slavery for 400 years of his people and the devastation of Egypt through the plagues and the bringing out with the mighty hand of his people to point to the main event. That was all a shadow. That was all preparation. That was the appetizer. The entree, the main event, the real thing that casts a shadow backwards is Jesus. He is the true son of God that God will bring out of Egypt. And so we see, and this is what we see Jesus saying at the end of Luke and elsewhere. He says, I've come to fulfill the scriptures. The scriptures all point to me. All of history has been ordered by a sovereign God to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew's saying in that verse, and it's astonishing. So this little child, smaller than we would have thought for a conquering king, is actually fulfilling a role that's much bigger than we could have imagined, right? And another thing that it's saying is that Jesus in coming, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in what God called him and brought him, his father brought him to earth to do, he takes our stories up into his person. And he gives them meaning. Okay, he gives them meaning. Um, he embodies our story. And he gives, he gives our, our stories meaning. So then after that, what does Matthew move to in his narrative of Jesus? He, um, he doesn't talk really any about Jesus growing up, but basically 30 years elapse. And he, taught, he then moves to Jesus um, going to get baptized in chapter 3. And he talks about Jesus going into the Jordan and being baptized by John the Baptist. 
And he doesn't do it. We, we're baptized as a sign of our sins being washed away. But Jesus has no sin. And so John the Baptist, his cousin, says, why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And what does he say? He says, permit it now for the fulfilling of all righteousness. In other words, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my people, for God's people. I'm representing them. Just like I represented them in, just like I represented them even as they were brought out of, out of Egypt, I was the one actually that would later be brought out of Egypt. I'm, I'm fulfilling their story, um, so I'm doing that here. I'm representing them before God Almighty. So he crosses, he gets baptized in the Jordan, crosses over into the wilderness, and what did Israel do when Israel entered from the 40 years in the wilderness into the promised land? What did Israel cut through? Just cut through the Jordan River, right? So just like Israel was brought from the wilderness um, by Joshua through the Jordan River into the promised land. So Jesus goes through the Jordan, but not into the promised land. He goes into the, into the wilderness that our sin is made of the world. And he spends 40 units of time in the desert. 40 units of time. Does that sound like anything? Again, like I just said, it sounds like God's people, Israel, in the desert for 40 years, right? Jesus is, um, he's stepping along the path of God's people that they've already trod. However, there are differences, and one of the differences is stark here. Israel is tested. Is Jesus tested in the wilderness? Absolutely. He's tested by Satan himself. Israel's tested centuries before, 1,400 years before, and how does she do? How do God's people do in their own strength? Terribly. Terribly. God is super faithful, and they, from the start, just like, just like we do in our own strength, they disobey, they grumble, they complain. Many of them are swallowed up. The first generation almost completely is abolished and their kids are the ones who walk into the promised land. So they fail, but does Jesus fail? No, where Israel failed and stumbled and disobeyed God, Jesus obeys his father perfectly from the heart. He obeys him perfectly from the heart. Um, and he's living the life of faithfulness that we should live but cannot. He's doing it for us. Um, Matthew 4, 7, he emerges, he begins to preach. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means near or it's, the kingdom is here. Um, a lot of us think the kingdom is coming. That's wrong. The king, Jesus, when he came the first time, he brought the kingdom with him. We're going to talk a lot more about that. Um, basically, he's saying, I will begin to fulfill the words of Isaiah 61. That was the first text that he read as the inaugurator began his ministry. And it talks about taking the waste places and the devastated places, people places, and making them into beautiful places. Um, and he talks about setting the prisoner free. He's come to, to destroy a much bigger enemy than our political enemies. Or give us a much better situation than uh, having our, our political situation righted. He's come to, to defeat the big enemies that bind us of sin, of death, of Satan, of hell. Um, so he emerges from the wilderness, according to Matthew, and he chooses 12 men to follow him, to be with him. Um, again, representing God's people, Israel, just like in the Old Testament. And he basically says, hey, come, I've made you to be with me. Come follow me. Come be with me. Come walk with me. I'm coming to reconcile men to myself, into relationship. God's not about um, us just obeying him in a perfunctory way because he expects something from us. He's about bringing us back into the relationship of a son and a father. Okay, and the true son has come to do that. And so he brings um, his disciples with him, followers start to follow him. And then what happens? A lot of us are familiar with this. Um, he goes up as he gathers Israel to himself. He goes up the mountain just like Moses did. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to what? 
to get the law. To meet with God and to get the law. And then when he gets the law, to bring it down the mountain of the people. And how do the people do during that time? Once again, not well. It's all recorded there for us. It's one of the many things that remind us this is true history. No other national history in the ancient Near East that I've read or am aware of is like this. Most national histories that people write of their own people in the ancient Near East, they talk about how wonderful their kings were, how many conquests there were, how great they are. Israel, the history of the Old Testament is the history of Israel as a people, and it's a sordid history of disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. No sooner does Moses go up the mountain to get the law for the people, law from God that's good to, for them to live by, than that they start committing idolatry and making an idol for themselves and worshiping that idol, okay? And so uh, Moses comes down and he's furious. He's incensed. He, he shatters the tables of covenant. He, uh, he's been with God and so he's untouchable. Like he has to wear a veil over his face. He glows with the presence of the living God and there's a separation between him and the people. So he goes to get the word of God and for 40 days and 40 nights, the mount, there's a mountain that's on fire and there's thunder and lightning and you can't touch it unless you, lest you die. That's the situation of Moses going up that mountain to get the law. By contrast, look at Jesus in, Mos- in Matthew chapter 5. Um, Matthew chapter 5 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Moses, nobody goes with Moses. And there's some things, Joshua comes part of the way with him, and then there's some elders that have a meal on the mountain in Exodus 19. But for the most part, Moses is alone, and he's terrified, right? And he comes down, and he's untouchable. Jesus, people follow him. His disciples are with him. He's approachable. He sits down, and he doesn't get the law from God and then give it to the people. What does he do? Verse 2 of chapter 5, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So here is a king who is... A great, he's greater than Moses. He's, he's showing us something that's greater than Moses and he's not getting the law from God. He's opening his mouth and he's giving the law. He's giving the law. Um, but he's, and he's so approachable. What does his kingdom look like? In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we get a picture in the best sermon that's ever been preached. The Sermon on the Mount is popularly referred to as. We get a picture of what God's kingdom looks like um, it's the world that the sermon describes. Um, it's, it tells us about the fabric of what the reign of the king and his kingdom citizens will look like on the earth. And it's really, it's a world that we really all want to be in. There's, not only is there no adultery, no murder, but there's no lust. There's nothing in the heart that's evil. There's no hatred of our fellow man. Um, there's humility there's no lying at all on the contrary there's not even a swearing nobody ever says I swear this is true why because everything you say is dead solid honest and so you just say yes and it means yes or no and it means no there's no religiosity nobody does anything so anyone else will see it it's done in private And you don't even know when you're giving alms to the poor that your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing because you know You want to do it because God provides and so you're his son or daughter and you do the same thing and you know that God sees everything. So when you go and pray and when you fast and when you give of the overflow of what you have to help those that are less fortunate, you do so with no fanfare at all because you know that God's your father and he sees and he will reward, right? Um, And 
There's no divorce. There's no covenant infidelity. There's complete faithfulness. There's no retaliation. Everyone loves one another from the heart. And in fact, you love your enemies. You love those who slap you. You bless them. You serve them. You speak well of them. Um, You lay your life down for them. Um, There's taking care of those that can't take care of themselves. You're not spending on earth to take care of your own kingdom. You're, you, you understand that you're investing in the kingdom that's to come. And so you're releasing what you have to the Lord and, and lifting up um, those that are beneath you. Um, and so what Jesus is doing is he's describing what the reign of the king looks like and the kind of world that it's going to create. Um, and this is a world that we want to be a part of, but the problem is that it, we, it can't, this world can't exist if I'm a part of it, as I am, okay? As I am, as I'm born, okay? Um, in, in, my, in my sinful state, in my bondage, in my selfishness, in my pride. Um, if I'm part of this, then this world's not going to be like this. Um, and so how do we enter into this kingdom. And I think one of the keys to how we enter into this beautiful kingdom, it's not through muscling things up, it's not through rolling our sleeves up and cleaning ourselves up. The key is in the Beatitudes, which is how Jesus starts the sermon, and particularly in the first Beatitude. In the first Beatitude, um, Jesus says, this is the blessed life. And he gives a bunch of, Oz Guinness says, what he does is he goes to shake your hand and he punches you in the stomach instead. He takes the air out of you because you're expecting blessed are the rich. Or whatever. And what he says is, blessed are, the, um, or blessed are those who don't suffer. And he's like, blessed are those who do, right? Blessed are those who are happy all the time. Blessed are those who mourn. But what he starts with in, in uh, Matthew 5, 3 is, blessed are, those, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to say what I did to the kids um, a few minutes ago is that kids show us, I think, poverty of spirit really well a lot of times. Sometimes they don't. But what is, what is poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is saying, I have nothing to give. When it comes to being in your kingdom, God, when it comes to uh, you being my father <clears throat> and us being simpatico, us having a, a peaceful, good relationship where I'm, I'm favored by you, I bring nothing. I have a poverty of spirit. Um, I, I bring nothing but trouble to you. And yet Jesus says, this is the entryway into this kingdom, is when you come and say that, it's called repentance, right? It's saying, I can't do it. And Jesus, you've come to do it for me. You are the king that has walked the way of God's people, but in the right way, instead of the wrong way that I've been walking. You've come to live for me, and you've come to lay your life down for me. It's, it's blessed are the poor in spirit is God's, Jesus saying that contrition, humility, and repentance is the gateway to the kingdom of God. Because what does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what? What's the back part of that? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs, I don't, I, nothing in my hand I bring. Only to your cross I cling by faith, right? You've come and done what I can't do. Um, it's not through achievement. I can't, you must, in Christ you have. That's what faith is. Um, and then look at the first thing that Jesus does. Don't worry, I'm going to do this and then go lightning speed to the end of Matthew. But look at the first thing that happens as Matthew is setting up for us this man who is embodying Israel, Israel itself, but doing what Israel couldn't do. And he's the greater Moses. And then he goes up and he opens his mouth. Rather than getting the law, he gives the law from the mountain. 
Again, the mountain in the Old Testament was untouchable. God and we and God can't be together because of our sin unless something happens, unless he comes down as he did, right? And so the first thing that Matthew records Jesus doing when he, when he closes his mouth and says, if you, build, if you build your life on these words, it'll be something. You'll, you'll be solid. If you don't, it, no matter how good the house looks, it's going to wash away. Um, he, he's approached by an unclean person, a deeply unclean person, who in the law couldn't come around those who were clean. Um, he's approached by a leper. And um, re- a leper represented ceremonial uncleanness. A leper uh, was unclean and, and untouchable. And they had to scream untouchable wherever they went and they had to live apart from everyone else and so this leper this man full of leprosy approaches Jesus a big no-no and he says and he kneels before him who do you kneel before kings and he says lord he calls him lord rightly he says lord if you will you can make me clean and what does Jesus do he says I will be clean but he does something else he reaches out and he touches him this king who is God, who is opening his mouth and giving us the perfect law of God that's showing us this amazing kingdom that we can be part of through humbling ourselves. He is so approachable. And instead of being made dirty through our sin, through our uncleanness, he comes and touches us and his cleanness moves to us rather than our uncleanness infecting him, okay? And that part comes, the the uncleanness that he that he chooses to take upon himself at the end of his life. Um, But compassion drives this king. Um, If we look at his ministry too, uh, he makes wrong things right. Um, The kingdom of this, uh, the the kingdom is the reign of this king that's manifest. We look at, just to fast forward over the rest of Matthew, he's the king not only of sickness, but um, over creation he walks on water he's the king over sin he says to the paralytic that's lowered through the roof uh take heart your sins are forgiven he's the king over demons demons flee um he's the king over disease and even over death he raises the widow in Nain. he raises her son from the funeral uh beer he uh Jairus the leader of the synagogue he raises her his daughter from the dead he raises Lazarus Um, But the enemy that he came to wage war against and defeat wasn't the Egyptians as in Moses' day. It wasn't the Philistines as in David's day. It wasn't the Romans like like the Jews were expecting of Jesus' own day. It was us. We have this resident evil, G.K. Chesterton, the great sort of English wit and journalist. uh, He said, this is overused, but it's it's overused for a reason. There was a, a Times article that said, what's wrong with the world? And they sent out they solicited responses from sort of prominent journalists and writers and thinkers of the time. And they solicited one from G.K. Chesterton and he wrote the shortest response and the most true and the wittiest. He said, dear sirs, in response to your uh, question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are the problem. Sin isn't just something we do, it's who we are. It's what we're born into and we are born shaking our fists at God. Even if we say we're not, we're born opposed to God. We want to be king. We don't want him to be king. Um, and it's, it's the ticker. It's the problem from the inside that makes everything else dirty. And we can't do anything to change that. We can't. That's why we have to be like children to enter the kingdom. And so Jesus came to war against, in a sense, um, the evil and sin and rebellion inside us 
that's woven itself into the deepest places of who we are. Um, he came to war against, in a sense, us. But if he was going to do that, we would be destroyed. So what did he do? He took all that upon himself at the end of his life. That's why he came. He, kept, he continued to say, I came to die. I came to live the life that you can't live and to die the death that you deserve. And to take, to literally, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to take your sin upon myself. He became, he became our sin. He endured the wrath of God we deserve. And he tasted all the hell that we would taste would have tasted if we had not trusted in Christ and that those that don't trust in Christ but trust in themselves will taste. Um, he took that on the cross. Um, and he was killed. But that isn't the end. Um, a, a theologian, George Eldon Ladd, says, the kingdom of God is God's reign defeating his enemies, bringing men into the enjoyment of the blessings of the divine reign. Um, and to give us those blessings, Jesus became a curse for us by hanging on a cross and he became our sin and he surrendered himself to the satanic forces of evil and he, and he defeated them. Lad says again, the gospel of the kingdom is the announcement of Christ's conquest, not over the Egyptians or the Romans, but over death itself. Um, and so one question I would have as I, as I draw to a close and give one point of application is when going back to Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted in our place and he came out successful, he came out victorious over temptation, not having yielded. The third temptation that Matthew lists is what? Does anyone know what the third temptation is? The third temptation is, in Matthew, is Satan says, he takes Jesus to a high place and he says, look out over all the world and look out over all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you these if you will but worship me. And Jesus quotes from a place in the scriptures that Israel was in the desert from Deuteronomy 6 or 8. And he basically is take, doing what Israel did not do. Israel was grumbling and complaining. And he takes the word of God and says, don't put the Lord your God to the... the you, should, you should worship the Lord your God only. And only him shall you serve. And so he doesn't, um, he doesn't give in. But the question is, why was that a temptation to Jesus? And I think the answer is, or at least part of the answer is, because Jesus came to have, he wanted all, he wanted dominion. He came to have dominion over all the kingdoms. It's been for, it was prophesied. He is the king. He came to have dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. But he chose not to do it the easy way. He chose to go the way of the cross. He chose to go the way of pain infinite pain, a pain that we can never, we will never, thank God, know if we are in Christ by faith. Um, he, he chose to wear a crown of thorns and to be rejected by his own creation and to hang on a cross and to endure the wrath of God for us. So just as we move into application and close, how does his kingdom grow? It grows in the same way. It grows as we die. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. We die to being right, to insisting on our own way, to being served. We die to winning. It grows like a, like a tree grows, like an acorn in the ground. It, it surrenders. It trusts. It, uh, it dies. Um, it doesn't spread. God's kingdom does not spread as we conquer others, as we win arguments. These are all things that the flesh says. This is how, this is how my kingdom grows. This is how I spread my... Um, 
influence out over the world. We, it doesn't come as we conquer others or win arguments or beat the opposition and the world down with our political uh, acumen or even with our vote. Um, it comes as we love our enemies, as we feed and clothe the poor, widows, as we tend to prisoners, as we provide for one another with a common fund, as we love each other sacrificially, as we're patient, kind, hospitable, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. That's dying, that's death, that's surrender, that's trust. Um, but it's doing so because he has done that for us and it flows out of us. And every time we do it, it's a death and it's a trust in him and it's letting his life come through us and knowing that his kingdom grows as we surrender and as we trust, not as we um, grab what we think is ours, right? So um, a scholar, uh, Kreider, in a book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, um, he quotes from Justin's first apology in, uh, written from Rome in about 150 AD. He says, quote, Justin sees the Roman's life as a habitus, which means a set of habits, of unfreedom characterized by addictive practices in four areas, sexual ethics marred by fornication, the occult trapped by magical arts. Um, if, you don't, if you think we don't struggle with that, uh, the occult and magical arts, just go into a half-price bookstore go into a Barnes and Noble, if you can find one these days, look at the occult, the spiritual section, um, Halloween, the day coming in a couple days, check, you know, check that out. Um, they also struggle with wealth and possessions, which were distorted by competitive acquisitiveness and violence, fourthly, violence and xenophobia, filled with hatred and murder toward people of different tribes and customs. How much is that going on right now, right? It could be races, it could be tribes and customs, it could be just people different from us. We see that so much in our society. Justin reports that Christians also struggle with these primal areas. They weren't, it's not like they weren't struggling. All of them, he says, Christians have discovered are seductive and potent. But their lives are demonstrably different, and this slowly but surely helps change the culture in the wider ancient world. Kreider goes on to write, Justin attributes the Christians' practices to the teachings of Jesus. They have the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ himself engraven on their hearts, and these they observe. As a result, their common life had distinctive characteristics. They were sexually disciplined, truthful, financially reliable, and they loved their neighbors. More surprisingly, they loved their enemies. He goes on, they comfort such as wrong them, and they make friends of them. They labor to do good to their enemies. Um, and one last thing as we cast to the end of Matthew is our mission kingdom building. How do we do it? Jesus said all authority because of what I've done, because I took I, I, the right way through dying in your place and living in your place and enduring the cross and being your shield and taking the wrath of God and becoming your sin. Because I've paid that price and risen from the grave, all authority has been given me. All authority. He has all, every single bit of authority. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Um, our strategy at Sojourn has always been stated thus. Make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. But COVID has helped me see and us see, I think, with greater clarity that we've kind of leapfrogged over the make disciples part. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission or commandment. We've leapfrogged over the first part, make disciples, to multiplying parishes and planting churches. And so what we want to do is repent. Remember how repentance is the entryway into the kingdom? We want to repent and go back and say, we want to be serious about what Jesus told us to do, which is to go and make disciples who make disciples. And so we are working hard to set up some, just some clear 
reproducible systems that will help us as a church to take reaching the lost and making disciples who go and make disciples uh, the priority, the priority for us. And so one of the things I want to do, um, we're going to be all about this. One of the things that I want to do with you, and we'll talk, you'll hear this till your ears bleed, so don't worry. But one of the things that I want to do, homework assignment. I don't give a lot of homework assignments and sermons. They might become, that might become more, kids don't worry. That might become more common, but I've done it. It's been put before us as one of the sort of basic, simple things to start uh, creating a culture of being intentional about reaching the loss that God's put on our lives and going after them is I want you to make a list of, start making a list of 100 people that are in your life that are lost, that don't know the Lord. And what's going to happen is, and I won't say much more about it and then I'll close. What's going to happen is you're going to peter out at around number 30. But keep your foot on the gas and we're going to help you with that. Because with that list, what we're going to do is we're going to put three to four people, we're going to break that list up on a calendar for a month and put three to four people per day on that list and start praying for them and start being intentional about going after them for the Lord and then move into discipleship as those people start, God willing, to come to the Lord. So I just want to say, um, we're gonna, you're going to hear a lot about your, your hundred, your hundred. Um, start creating a list of a hundred. We want to help. We're going to go back to that and back to that. Um, Next week, we move into Acts and the letters and look at the kingdom and how Christ is reigning and what that means for us more. And then we're going to finish the series with two weeks in Revelation, which I think is the most maligned, misunderstood book that we're afraid of in the church. But it's a treasure because it's the most Christ-exalted, um, Christ-saturated, uh, more than conquerors book in the Bible, I would say. And so I'm excited to, to finish by looking at that and how the kingdom of Christ, how he's reigning and why that matters for us during this time. Um, regardless of how the election turns out next week, guys, we have a king who's on his throne. We have a king who's conquered. Uh, we have a king who specializes in working through tumult and disorientation, and his kingdom will never end. Nations come and go. Go vote. It's important. But don't put your hope in a political party, and don't put your hope in a candidate, and don't put your hope in a country. And the, best, the way that you can be the best citizen possible is by fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ and realizing that he reigns and his kingdom goes out as we release and surrender and look to him and trust him um, as our king and as our savior. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for every single person here. Thank you for this little family. Lord, um, you love working through small things. You came as a baby born in a feed trough and you will reign until every enemy is put under your feet. We bless you. We love you. Um, fill us, Holy Spirit. Make us obedient um, sons and daughters who are about making disciples, about your commission, because you are the king. Um, all that we are is yours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.